0: From Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers, a new podcast about rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. This is Voices of Recovery.
1: I just didn't feel like I got the right script in life or I was missing how to be normal. After that, my addiction
2: had just completely took a spiral. I was always searching for the ultimate high, which I believe I found, which was just this side of death because of the progressive nature of this illness. I can't get that back. And either I die or I make it out of it and I will have screwed everything up so bad by that point that I will have to get help and somehow try to get sober. It is my one-year sober anniversary, and I am doing a podcast, and I'm very happy about it.
0: Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. This week, we're talking about the look good. What, Debbie, is the look good?
1: Oh, boy. Well, let's see. I live in Oregon, and I'm going to always make sure that I'm a little more put together than the average
0: woman my age. <laughs> This is Debbie, and she's got the look good in spades. From the sapphire and diamond rings to her soft pink wrap top, she just looks great. She projects effortless poise and style. She's diminutive and soft-spoken. Her voice competes at times with the crackling fire she was sitting next to during our interview.
1: You know, I I have to have contemporary fashion on, and you know, look somewhat healthy. I'm pretty much. Though it's genuine today, a smile on my face and keeping my house in order, making sure that it looked or appeared at least as if I was cooking and being somewhat of a a homemaker. But I also think it crossed over a lot into telling untruths or exaggerating my involvement in things to make me appear better than I am.
0: You know, just not letting anyone see any weakness in me. You may have noticed that you've heard Debbie before. She's the first voice we featured in our opening montage. I just didn't feel like I got the right script in life or I was missing how to be normal. The look good is a balancing act between standing out and blending in. You want to be the best dressed person in the room, but you also don't want anyone to look too closely. In Debbie's case, these efforts started with a childhood where she knew her family wasn't like everyone else's.
1: I was keenly aware that my upbringing was a little different than I perceived other people's upbringing. In my early teens, I became acutely aware that uh, my family life was different, um... My parents divorced when I was an early teen, and my mom became very much an activist in the civil rights movement. And the people that came through my house were colorful and very different than my friends' homes. And um, I had a really deep sensitivity to life in general. You know, I just had a, what I perceived to be a different way of being in life. And I think what I was trying to protect was just The real vulnerability of being someone that was different. I didn't want to stand out. You know, I've heard other recovering alcoholics talk about feeling different. And um, I clearly was one of those. And even though I really liked the parts of my life that
0: were different, um, I felt very sensitive about it. Debbie feeling different wasn't entirely unfounded. Her upbringing was pretty offbeat. I did start smoking pot when I was thirteen, and
1: I didn't take to it right away. But it was my mom who was um, the one who introduced me to it because she was curious. And we had a lot of foster brothers and sisters who were clearly um experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And she asked me one time, being a good mom, she said, you know, do you have any curiosity about experimenting with stuff? Because I'm kind of curious what this marijuana thing is. And so she was actually my first person that I got high with. And um, she said, I'd much rather you do it at home where we're safe and I can get some from your foster brother. And we did that. We climbed down to the canyon where I lived in Southern California and smoked some marijuana and giggled and couldn't get back up and it was getting dark and so that was my first experience
0: with just you know getting out of my head and feeling altered. It was around this time that the ground beneath Debbie's feet started to shift. Her parents' marriage fell apart and in divorce Debbie's mother found freedom but Debbie found herself stuck in a new role. I became the mom.
1: She sort of went the other direction when she left my dad and it was as if she was reclaiming a part of her youth that she had never really experienced and it was the sixties and seventies and things were kinda of wild and loose and she was dating and in the jazz clubs late at night and I took on a very adult role and um, you know, tried to keep everything together. I had done that as a child as well. You know, my father as my mother was gone more and more, we get pretty disgruntled when the dinner wasn't ready or the house wasn't in order. And so I was like a little mom from an early age. And so it was sort of like we reversed roles in my teens. And from all outside appearances, I had it all together. You know, I started working at an early age. I was a great student in school. Um, I just seemed to need to keep the family look good going. She was going off on her adventures. And although I appreciate the work she did, and I, as an adult woman, I understand what she was going through after a long marriage that wasn't the happiest. I just,
0: I feel that a part of my childhood was sort of taken away. By her late teens, Debbie wanted to leave home and experience something different, but she felt like she should go to college. So she applied to one school, the University of Hawaii. She knew a boy from one of the islands and had heard he was living in a treehouse community. In the end, Debbie was accepted to school and followed through on her plan to make a fresh start. Minus one detail. Off
1: I went to go to college, and bottom line, I never went to college. I went and sought him out on the island of Kauai and proceeded to fall in love and
0: create a life in in this treehouse community. After the stresses and responsibilities of her early years at home, the warm days and relaxed life on the island suited her fine. She was happy and in love, and it seemed like the ideal place to bring a new life into the world. She described her experience of being pregnant while living in the treehouse.
1: Well, it was pretty magical, and you know, you didn't have to wear a lot of clothes, and so there was a lot of sunning and waterfall bathing and, you know, just eating really healthy and Honoring this little life inside of me, you know, I had gone through some things earlier in life And I think I was really truly trying to recapture My honor of being a mom and I loved being pregnant. I loved it a lot and you know I worked in our little restaurant. I would bake bread every day and sing to the baby and You know just it was going to be a natural childbirth, and it was going to be pretty wonderful
0: And it should have been But sadly, perfect rarely lasts forever. The unfortunate thing is um, that
1: early in the pregnancy, there was a traumatic experience I had. And I ended up leaving the islands and not giving birth in Hawaii. Um, And it was centered around drugs and alcohol that were being sold out of my treehouse that I wasn't aware of, and it was um, enough
0: to make me decide to leave that life. I asked Debbie if she was comfortable talking about the traumatic experience that she endured early in her pregnancy. The details of this story are hard to hear. Listeners should know the following two minutes contain descriptions of violence. I was just laying under my mosquito
1: net when there was a horrible sound at the door, and these five men were breaking into our tree house. It wasn't real secure to begin with. And um, they were local men and they were pretty intoxicated. And what I didn't know at that time is that they were looking for drugs, specifically cocaine. I didn't actually, I don't know how I wasn't aware of this, but I maybe I just didn't wanna know about it, but my, son's father and another guy that were living in the same area um, were dealing cocaine by this point and um, somehow the word was out <laughs> and my guy was the last to know so I laid there scared out of my mind while they ran shocked the house and um, they had guns and they I was raped by each of them um, my son was I was a month pregnant I knew I was pregnant um, and it was brutal and it was um, it was ugly and I remember the last man some point I said I'm pregnant can you please not do this and he listened to me and um Our place was a disaster after that. And I just, I moved into one of the other tree houses for a little bit, but I knew that I needed to take care of myself and my
0: little boy. Debbie's life on the island was over. She knew it was time for another move and a new chapter. Pushing aside her trauma, she tackled the business of getting on with her life. I sort of just put it on the back shelf
1: in that old way of Operating in the world where I just had a knack for, um, I really developed a knack through the years of my childhood for getting on with life and looking for the best in things and trying not to, um, to dwell in the past. Um, that kicked in and I was able to get on with life, but I did end up leaving my son's father when my son was 10 days old. And at that point, I left with just a backpack. I knew that it wasn't a healthy
0: environment. And um, I struck out on my own. And so Debbie returned to sunny Southern California. Well, <laughs> I went home to mom. Um, you know, I it was only for a little while, though.
1: I was pretty um, creative <laughs> with my um, ability to take care of myself. And I was, that's one of my defaults of character. I would say that I always go to this place of like, I got this, I can handle this. You know, no one's going to need to take care of me. You know, I ended up getting a beautiful home on the beach and I had girlfriends living with me and another one with a child. And they would look after my son and the other little boy in exchange for rent. And, um, I did a lot of cocktail waitressing There was a point that I actually started um, dancing in the clubs and that was something I thought I could handle because I was pretty, I wasn't involved in the club life or in drinking even at that stage. Um, It did take a toll on me, but the money was really good and it allowed me to be with my son during the day. But I was fairly ambitious and again, from all outside appearances, it looks
0: like I had it all together. As a single working mother, Debbie began to master the skills that would later make her a successful functioning alcoholic. Self-reliance, the ability to push away certain thoughts and feelings, and above all, putting up a strong front of functionality. At first, alcohol was just a part of the routine. I started drinking in my 20s in a more social way.
1: It was very often that it was a part of the environment I was working in. And so I would have cocktails after a shift, or I would decide to date somebody, and there'd always be drinks of some sort. And there was always pot throughout all this. Looking back, I didn't drink daily, and I didn't necessarily seek it out. But looking back, what I realized is I drank all there was. I drank what was there. (laughs) And I also, looking back, realized now that I was beginning to black out. I just thought that that's what everyone did when they had a few drinks, not remember really the whole night. There were places and dark places that I couldn't recover in the morning. I definitely was starting my journey in alcoholism and yet I didn't really see it as that at the time. I also noticed that I was uh, making excuses and neglecting my son more. Not that there wasn't food in the house or that he didn't have clean clothes, but more in the way of being emotionally present for him. I also always had a big house on the beach where I rented rooms out to because I wanted to have that lifestyle and that's what it took. And so there was quite a group of characters that would be in our house, and I really, looking back, feel like I jeopardized his well-being in some regard, um, and he he became very adult
0: at an early age as well. The look good can hide a lot of ugly things, not just from the world, but from the attic themselves. Debbie may not have seen it at the time, but much like her own childhood, her son would have to grow up fast there was a
1: lot of neglect of, you know, showing up for him or being present for him. And, you know, if there was any one person in the height of my drinking that would really confront me, I mean, confront me in the way he would like hold me down on Christmas Eve because I was out of control and, you know, begged me to stop this. You know, he really, he was the one that, um, wanted to control this craziness that was happening to his mom.
0: Around the time that Debbie turned 30, she met her husband and moved to Oregon. She had found the perfect partner. He loved to cook, he had an adventurous spirit, and he adored her for who she was. He also introduced her to fine wine. That's where
1: I really started to drink daily, except for that I got pregnant, and I did not drink during my pregnancy. And um, so there was that one brief nine or ten months where I didn't drink but from there on out it was daily drinking and it would start with uh, really fine wines and pretending that we were you know cooking the gourmet meal and pairing the right wine with the right food and then it would sort of become cheaper bigger bottles and you know many nights just fighting over the last of what was there and maybe two big bottles between us. And this is where, you know, I don't know when it crossed over. You know, I'm pretty sure that once you become a daily drinker with the amount of alcohol I could consume in a day, I don't know when I would call myself an alcoholic, but I do know that by my mid to late 30s, um, I had to have it. There was no question. I I would go to any lengths to get it and also any lengths to hide it as much as possible. My consumption was huge and, you know, I'm a smaller person and the amount I could drink or needed to drink daily was a lot. And also the terror of anyone taking away the one thing that by that point was the only thing that made me feel normal. I mean, I had to have
0: it by that point. Debbie had an all-or-nothing relationship with alcohol. If she was able to abstain, it involved a lot of intense white-knuckling. There wasn't a day that I went without drinking most of my life until I got sober.
1: There was one day and that was my son's wedding because I knew by then that if I were to start drinking, I didn't even have a toast of champagne because I was holding myself so tight. I knew that there'd be no stopping me. And um, it was a really beautiful wedding and I was so proud of myself. And um, a day later we had a big reception. And that day (laughs) I drank to make up for both of the days. And, um, you know, I think there were enough people there that I didn't make too much of a spectacle of myself. But I was actually
0: Amazingly, the one day that I purposefully could keep myself from drinking. Debbie's look good centered on appearing normal, and alcohol allowed her to maintain that appearance. Not surprisingly, her alcoholism progressed. My drinking wasn't
1: evident to a lot of people, and I made sure that I always showed up for work. I may have been kind of hungover, or maybe still intoxicated from the night before, but I made sure that my look good was strong and if I was going to go out with people to drink I made sure that I went home first and drank what I needed to so that I could get enough and not make it really obvious you know I mean I went to amazing lengths it's it's so strange how alcoholism takes on that life and that you will alter my whole life and lifestyle around it and that's what I did best is that I kept
0: it from people until I didn't (laughs) While Debbie was presenting a convincing front to the world, there was no hiding what was happening from her family, especially her daughter, who was a teenager during the worst years of her drinking.
2: My
1: daughter got the brunt of the ugliness of alcoholism. She would come home from school, and I would already be three sheets to the wind, and I can't tell you I can bring back that image of her looking at me at 9 or nine thirty, wanting to tell me about her day or perhaps ask me for help with homework and I I wasn't there you know and I remember the way she would look at me and the way she would shake her head and just the despondency in her face and just the hopelessness of you know there I am again you know or my slurring, or my inability to follow conversation, or my silliness um, inappropriately with her friends. Yeah, it was brutal for her. Luckily, her dad was drinking too, but he was sort of a happy-go-lucky drunk, and he seemed to know when he needed to go to bed and not let the worst of it show up. Um, And he
0: kind of took over the lead in parenting during those years. In a now familiar cycle, Debbie's daughter had to grow up fast and while the situation at home was falling apart, her look good at work and with friends was still intact. Little did she know, she was about to hit her bottom, a day that she described as one of the most poignant and important of her life. Of all the places to hit an alcoholic bottom, the Eugene Celebration was a good choice. The three-day festival is held in early September, when summer is still in the air and people go downtown to enjoy live music and local food. They engage in lots and lots and lots of drinking. The streets are closed to cars and are pretty much packed with tipsy pedestrians from morning to night. You were free to drink alcohol as you walked around and participated. And I loved the Eugene celebration, it was a perfect, acceptable reason to be publicly drunk. (laughs) To take advantage of this free-for-all, Debbie and her husband had a tradition of reserving a suite at a nearby hotel. This provided a place to relax from the revelry, as well as an additional bar for pregame consumption. This particular year, Debbie's pregame included a whole bottle of wine. And by the time she joined her friends, she realized she had already overshot the mark.
1: I remember being drunk and embarrassing them, and that was not the usual. I usually kept it pretty together with them. They were dear friends, but I remember them holding me up as we walked around and doing
0: some embarrassing things. Debbie's recollection of the following events is a little hazy, but she remembers this. She was working in special education at the time, and her boss called her on Friday with a last minute favor to ask. A guest lecturer due to give a presentation on autism had canceled. Since Debbie happened to be staying in the same hotel where the lecture was scheduled to take place, her boss asked if she could put up some signs to notify people that the event was canceled. Debbie agreed, but everything after that is a blur. I don't remember much of Saturday
1: or nothing of Saturday night. It was a true blackout. The next morning, however, this was before cell phones, we had these old school voice recorders for messages, and I woke up to hearing that thing going off and hearing one shaky mom's voice after another thanking me and telling me what a great job I had done, that they were very interested in talking more or hearing about that book I had recommended or some other question and could I call them back. And I think I was about into my fifth phone call, and I realized I had these little glimpses of that morning, the morning before, where I apparently had gone down to put the sign about this speaker not being there. And apparently I decided that I had enough knowledge that I could do this myself. And I did get up and I wish to God, I mean, as horrible as it would be to hear I wish somebody that I know would tell me what I said and what I did because I have no recollection. I was completely blacked out. I have no idea what I said or who I recommended or what book I was referring to. And so that sinking feeling of these really um, desperate moms and dads, you know, that were there to learn more about the kids they couldn't understand. And I had had the Nerve and the gumption in a blackout to get up there and, you know, pretend like I knew what I was talking about. I was horrified. and so there was only one thing to do because I couldn't deal with that
0: level of pain, and I started drinking. Debbie moved from one blackout into another. During an alcoholic blackout, a person may appear relatively normal, but their brains are not forming long-term memories. And anything that happens, anything they do or say is forgotten. It's a really terrifying and unnerving experience. In this case, it's what brought Debbie to her knees, both literally and figuratively.
1: I don't remember any of Sunday until I woke up and we had a great big house and I was at the clear other end of my house in my daughter's bed. I was in the fetal position and I woke up and I had this moment of clarity and it was, you know... um, what they call the jumping off place. I thought, I can't go on like this, but then what am I going to do? I can't live without this. And I literally dropped to my knees, and I was just like, God, I need help. And somehow, you know, I'm in and out of blackout at this point. My daughter and my husband became aware that I was asking for help, and it was just like, Instantaneous into action. Now this was nine o'clock on a Sunday night, and Serenity Lane was not open at that time for taking in new people. But my husband knew some of the people involved at the top, and you know, bless their hearts. I normally you have to go through an intake process and wait a couple days. I don't even know. Again, it felt like a God thing because somehow, by the grace of God, they let me in. I don't know what would have happened had they not. And, you um, know, I went into the detox unit, and I know that when I finally really came to, I was pretty angry, but I also had this amazing sense of relief like the gig is up here. We, you know, I get to have a chance, and I felt um, really terrified and yet really, really relieved. So, you know, thus began my. 28-day stay at Serenade Lane, the um, intensive inpatient treatment. And that was quite a journey in itself.
0: In treatment, Debbie discovered parts of herself that had been deeply buried. For years, her look-good had kept her afloat. It saved her from drowning in a sea of trauma and responsibilities. Deprived of that tool that she had come to depend on, Debbie fought.
1: Those first few days, I was a fighter and I didn't know it. I became belligerent, and I'd be sweet one moment and belligerent. What I didn't realize is that, you know, my whole psyche was going through a shift without any medication, and I I was pretty um, nasty, and so they gave me a room by myself when I finally got detoxed, and then I was lonely, and I hooked up with this one woman that had the look good going on, and she and I, we carry our little clipboards, and we became the top students of Serenity Lane. From that point on, I took it very seriously, and I loved it so much. I have never felt like I belonged anywhere um, in the way that I did when I came there, and, you know, I loved that. I didn't have to think and worry about the daily, you know, chores, and taking care of things, and just the need to start another day again you know i could just be a lot more real and i got a super education about what this disease was and even that it was a disease because nothing made sense you know it didn't ever make sense that this would be how my life would turn out and you know i was able to realize that alcohol had um taken away any any dreams i ever had that my need to drink um You know, there were things that had happened along the way. I worked in education and I had a boss who saw the potential in me. And this type of thing happened often where she wanted to send me to school and pay for it. But I couldn't explain to her that you don't understand. I have to drink after work, you know. So I had a moment to, you know, like catch my breath and really look at my life and start to feel my feelings. I felt like for the first time in my life that People understood me on a deep level, and I didn't have to hide who I was anymore, and that it was okay, because I had a disease, and something about that gave me so much comfort. You know, I had no idea the work ahead of me, which, of course, I've grown
0: to love. But yeah,
1: I love the whole, I love everything about it.
0: Alcoholism is a mysterious, often confusing condition. Most people are baffled by their own addiction when they arrive, and Debbie was no different. Treatment involves a lot of discussion and explanation aimed at demystifying the disease and showing patients that it's treatable.
1: They really did an incredible job at Lane of breaking it down through the medical perspective, you know, through the psychological perspective. And there's still so many unknowns as to why, um, and yet it was just such a comfort to understand that when I take alcohol, You know, they call it an allergy of the body and then an obsession of the mind. And that is exactly the definition that made sense to me because for some reason that I couldn't explain, when I started drinking, all of a sudden, I would respond differently to it than another person.
0: Certain biological realities can leave women more susceptible to the negative effects of alcohol. These include body mass, hormonal changes, and lower levels of certain enzymes that break down alcohol in the stomach and liver. For Debbie, learning about the science behind her drinking made facing her addiction seem possible. I learned about the progression of it, particularly how it progresses
1: in women. And I learned about how even when I'm not drinking, that my alcoholism is continuing to grow and develop in a physiological way, which blew me away. I've been sober long enough to have witnessed that. People go out and leave the programs that keep them sober, but they, if they're lucky enough to make it back, their stories are just chilling. And I've seen people die from this disease and I could see the progression happening in myself so rapidly. That was another really confusing thing. When it used to be one bottle of wine, now it was a big bottle of wine and a fifth of vodka. And the thought of, Taking in that much alcohol to me, it makes no sense, but um, that's what I needed by that point. You know, so I just really appreciated the very matter of fact way
0: that they broke it down and explained what we do know about this mysterious disease. Debbie's stay in residential was a much needed break. She ate good food, she made friends, and she threw herself into recovery. When she returned home, she was determined to stay sober. I then went
1: into outpatient. So that was a couple few nights a week, and, you know, I just craved it. I would get through my work day, and I couldn't wait to get there. And that's where I met my good friend that I'm still close with today. And in between those evenings, you know, we started venturing out to these meetings. And um, truthfully, because I was a home drinker, I was afraid to go home, so she and I would just hang out in between meetings or in between our group sessions, and we would hang out at the local bookstore. Sometimes I would even go to the lobby of the hospital because somehow I felt safe there. I just wasn't really sure that I knew how to be in the world yet and without risking, you know, taking a drink. And my poor husband, I think he thought I'd never come home and cook again. I really, literally, it's taken me a long time to regain my ability to comfortably cook. I had become known for my cooking, but you see, there was always a bottle right there with me. So it was a great excuse to be in the kitchen and look semi-normal
0: cooking. I still struggle today with that, it's weird. Though Debbie doubled down on meetings, she resisted some other aspects of recovery. It was in that time
1: that we were supposed to be, you know, looking for, we were guided to look for a sponsor and start the journey outside of our treatment facility. And, you know, I was really good in treatment, but when it came to that, I didn't do so well. I, you know, kept looking for this perfect sponsor type. I knew what I had to do to maintain this gift I had, but I didn't, I just wasn't quite done yet. It was almost as if there were some things I had yet to learn. I don't know now. If I, I must have just not been ready because what happened is I didn't get a sponsor. And in the course of my doing the,
0: the year-long program, I drank. What Debbie would learn in the year ahead was that intention, desire, and determination were not enough to stay sober. Her newfound knowledge about addiction made her feel invincible. But she didn't realize that her lack of a sponsor or a structured program left her vulnerable to relapse. Debbie had just reached six months sober when she left for a trip to Mexico. Six months is a long time for an alcoholic to stay sober, so she was ecstatic. She had just arrived at a secluded house in Mexico overlooking the beach, and she was feeling on top of the world. There were a few dings in the day, like The fact that the previous guests had left a pantry full of booze, and it didn't help that her husband's ex-wife just so happened to own the house next door, but Debbie wasn't letting any of that get to her. She decided to celebrate her sobriety by taking a kayak out into the ocean. Now, she had never kayaked before, but as I mentioned, she was riding high that day, feeling good. Basking in the sun's warm glow, she paddled out past the breaker waves and marveled at the sudden swarm of manta rays that appeared all around her. All of a sudden, this
1: giant manta ray falls into the kayak, gets his fin trapped, and I am battling to get him out of there. And he's freaking out, and I'm freaking out, and we're in the middle of the ocean. And the next thing I know,
0: I get him out, and the kayak capsizes. There she was, fighting the riptide, thinking she's about to die. But she managed to stay calm and eventually made her way towards the shore. And that's when it happened.
1: Just as I'm getting to where I can start to stand up, I look at the beach and I see where I'm going. And here comes a Bo Derek look-alike running in her bikini with her cornrows and her tanned body first thing in the morning. And she's screaming out to me, are you okay? And I realize it's my husband's first wife, and she looks fantastic. And there I am dying in the water, and um, I'm sure I look horrible and no look good at all. (laughs) And I was mortified and I kind of waved her off. I scrambled to my feet and I remember standing up and there was blood all over my shins and my hair was full of sand and my bathing suit was barely on. And here she comes the other way and she's coming by waving, "'Are you okay?' And right as I tried to wave her off and tell her, yes, of course I was, the oar hit me in the back of my knees and I went over back into the water and just, you know, came up just pushing her away and saying, yes, I'm fine. And I felt as mortified and, and embarrassed as I ever felt. And all these feelings of, you know, I'm never gonna be her, I'm not good enough, I'm. this is all a joke. It just all flooded me that I wasn't enough, you know, that I was a fool. And I I went straight into the pantry and I grabbed that bottle of vodka and I chugged the whole thing. It's not even seven o'clock. And um, I drank it. And I realized I was no longer six months sober. But I have a witness, and it's my good friend who I'm still sober with today. And somehow, I got this rinky-dink little cell phone I had, and I called her. And I told her, I said, Leisha, I drank. And I remember her saying, you don't have to drink anymore. I was so grateful for those words, because I didn't have to throw the whole towel in. And I had remembered all I had learned, that sometimes relapse does happen, it's not a given. I remember going back to bed. I didn't drink again until the next time that a humiliating experience happened and I was without a sponsor. Debbie
0: returned to her outpatient meetings, but she was still holding on tight to that look good. Months after her first relapse, she found herself camping with a group of women known as the la di Now, in her last relapse, one seemingly perfect woman made Debbie question her worth. Now, stuck in the woods with an entire group of self-identified la-di-da ladies, all bets were off.
1: I wasn't drinking and I was really dry. In other words, I was really rigid and not sure how to have fun in this environment and angry and resentful that they could all have so much fun and that I couldn't, you know, that I was sequestered to this life of boring people and so I didn't drink that night but I got up before anyone else and I remember seeing the vodka in the freezer and because I'm really good at this kind of thing I just opened that freezer before 6 a.m. and I downed half a bottle of that vodka and then we had to hike eight miles (laughs) and it was brutal and I remember coming home from that and somehow I had a final moment of clarity where I realized that, you know, my self-pity was going to get me nowhere. My pride and ego. I hadn't really had an opportunity yet to experience what this program has to offer and that that looked good and that need to present myself in a certain way or find the perfect sponsor. You know, those things had to go if I was going to live in this world sober. I remember my counselor just saying, when are you going to... Realize that you can't do this alone. When are you going to ask for help for real? And that was huge for me because, you know, I thought that the knowledge I had been given was enough and that being a generally good person, I could do this. Um, and I was terrified to ask anyone for help because I had my whole life been able to somehow take care of myself. And I, again, it was the pride in that and the feeling of, I got this, you know, but it was going
0: to kill me. Debbie finally realized, alone, she was never going to be a match for her alcoholism. It was time to let go of the look good. And for her, this meant getting a sponsor. I finally got the gumption to call this one woman
1: that I knew would say yes. And I had known her for a while, and she indeed did say yes. And I felt this relief come over me. And we started working the steps together and meeting with her, and no one had ever given me that much time, or nor had I taken that much time of theirs, and she had nothing else going on, it seemed, and I didn't get how useful it is to sponsor another person, but I get it now, and she gave me tons of time, and I got to start on the journey of what it is to have that intimate relationship with another woman. I'm going to tell them pretty much anything, and they're probably going to get it without judgment. And that was huge. What I found today, I now have had my same sponsor for over 12 years. And, you know, I don't I don't know why I'm an alcoholic or why the next woman isn't. But what I do know is that I love this program that has given me a built-in sort of life coach. (laughs) That's not really the role, but it feels like, you know, I know that another woman has my back and that she is going to love me anyway, no matter what, um, because she gets me on that deep level, because I've opened up myself to her and have become very vulnerable, allowed her to know me, every part of me without needing to have any pretenses or illusions about who I am, and that she thinks I'm pretty special, and she really does have my back. And, you know, I wouldn't trade that if if being an alcoholic and having those, what I call the wasted years, yeah. means that today I get to live with clarity and with purpose and with intention That I still make mistakes, but I have a means by which I can amend those mistakes and continue to grow and um, strive to be what I always knew I was deep down inside.
0: It's just, it's such a gift. Learning to rely on her sponsor was a turning point in Debbie's recovery. She found her independence by allowing herself to depend on others. This may be why she takes the role so seriously now you'll hear a quiver in her voice when she speaks about the women that she sponsors. But it's not sadness. It's more a spilling over of love and gratitude. I sponsor several women and, you know, sometimes I think, I
1: don't know what I'm doing. I don't do it right. I know I don't do it right. I don't know what right is. I I do know that um, though we're all different, I love them completely unconditionally. Um they expand my understanding for human beings and my forgiveness of self. And um, I find them so brave and gutsy and fascinating. And um, I'm so honored it it blows me away that that any woman allows me to be in their lives to the level that I get to be, and to share their, you know, hopes, dreams, fears, and that we get to help each other, and you know, what they may not know is how much they help me, unfortunately I do rely on them a little bit, they seem a lot smarter than me at times, and it's such a special gift, and I... I seriously think that the most beautiful thing about sobriety is just returning oneself to their original beautiful self without what happens when you put a substance in that being and it gets altered and twisted and there's someone they don't recognize because I truly think that the women I get to sponsor are the most beautiful women on the planet in every way and whether it's because I know them, I know their very deepest parts of them, you know, and that is beautiful, or if it's just because they happen to be very cool and, <laughs> and pretty and, you know, fun and funny, um, I don't know. But it's, uh, it's an unexpected gift and byproduct of sobriety
0: that is, I don't think there's anything else like it in the world. If you have a loved one struggling with addiction, you might be thinking that Debbie sounds like the exact person that you would want to sponsor them. I agree. Incidentally, I'm lucky enough to say that that's actually how I know Debbie. She's my sister's sponsor. My sister Monique was relatively early in her sobriety when she moved to Oregon and met Debbie at a local meeting. I talked to both of them about their relationship and how they met. Long story short, they spotted each other's look goods from a mile away.
2: I was sitting in the back of the room feeling very lonely and very kind of like just, I don't know, I can't explain it, but I was just really feeling acutely that night, like how much I was not a part of this fellowship of people who all knew each other. And Debbie just happened to appear out of nowhere and sat down next to me and was, I think, just like being friendly and was just asking me how I was doing. And I had seen her before, but she was just so warm and she did look very put together. And I immediately kind of was like, oh, you know, look at her, look at that woman's jewelry. It's beautiful. I just remember
1: when I first saw Monique that she was different and she was from a city and she was smart when she spoke, and I thought, I really want to know her better. And she was kind of a breath of fresh air, something different. You know, I just remember her being very put together as well and um, earnest, and just seemed like someone I wanted to connect with.
2: When I first moved here, I moved here with a really half baked idea of how this was going to be this, like amazing springboard into a new life where like I'd be here for just a hot second and I'd go to school and then I'd go to another city and it would be fabulous and that looked good the idea of like I'm gonna be a high-powered high-functioning person and make up for all the things that I haven't accomplished and instead it just felt like I had I had a two years sober I had wrapped my life around a tree and I leaned on Debbie a lot in those days because it's like if if this is what I got sober for why am I sober and she was really instrumental and and that's not even the right word she was she was a force in my life i came into this relationship being extremely bad at showing and feeling my own feelings and to this day i'm still not great at that so what debbie has really shown me is how to just be human how to be emotional how to be vulnerable i have called her a lot of times and just said i don't know what to do and the beauty of that relationship is that debbie is not omnipotent so she can't say well here's here's what's going to happen and don't worry and she just tells me to do the things that i i have learned will keep me moving through difficult
0: periods so that i can get to the other side of them so there's small actions that add up to really big changes The challenges Debbie faced earlier in her life made her uniquely capable of inspiring big changes in her sponsees. On a personal note, I can see the change in my sister since she's known Debbie and the healing that they bring to each other's lives is really pretty special. I asked them how the sponsor-sponsee relationship is different than others. I feel
1: like I can pretty much say anything without having to qualify it. It's a different quality of love you know, having survived something together um, that defines that quality. And it is just a really interesting relationship that I hope that Monique or any of the others would know that I'm, I don't cast judgment at all. Whereas, you know, with my daughter who I'm, grateful to say after all the years of my drinking, I'm. she's my closest person. But there's things I'm not going to tell her because she's still my daughter. And it's
2: my responsibility now to be the mom she needed to be. So I'm going to show up in that way. There's an unconditional acceptance and love that I have with Debbie. And that has been, it sort of has begun to color all of the other relationships that I have. And Debbie has really taught me through how she treats me and how she she treats other people, how to be more loving and more human and more accepting of myself, which then lets me be more accepting of other people. Just talking about it reminds me of how special Debbie is and how lucky I am to have her for my sponsor and to have her in my life. I do want to say that when I met Monique, um,
1: I feel like just having been a little more sober and a, an older woman, I could see this beautiful Part of her that you know, because she's super intelligent and had a, a, a lot of other skill sets, um, hadn't allowed herself to bring forth into the world, and it was this beautiful heart, and I could see it in the way she related to animals and just this super kindness in her that I think she had a guard up, and I was thinking to myself that guard needs to come down a little bit, and you know she's been very vulnerable with me. So um, that is not something I, like, I would challenge my daughter with, for instance. And it's not like I'm trying to change anybody here, but just to see the most beautiful parts of them and let them know that it's OK to be that. You know, um,
0: it is. it is special. The look good that so many alcoholics hide behind starts as a shield, but ends up being a wall that separates them from the world. People in recovery say, You can't save yourself from drowning. It took Debbie a long time to accept the things that made her feel different and allow herself to be vulnerable. Now, she seems specifically drawn to women who share her sense of otherness, and she offers them the unconditional acceptance that saved her. Learning to love yourself by loving another person, that's a big part of how recovery works. Letting go of that look good clears the way to receive that love thank you for listening to this episode of voices of recovery all episodes are available at soundcloud and on itunes follow our facebook page for photos and sneak previews of upcoming episodes rate us and write us a review on itunes to help let people know about the show Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers in Oregon and Washington. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. Our music was composed by Sammy Gallo, with additional tracks by C-Stock Audio. Our production coordinator is James Tyson. Thank you to Debbie for so generously sharing her story being my sister's sponsor. Thank you to everyone at Sarandi Lane who helps make the show possible. We'll see you in a few weeks with more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction.